but if you have a, your worship folder in front of you, you'll see that our scripture passage this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 49. We are continuing in a series through, well, somewhat through uh, the prophet Isaiah. Truth be told, if we tried to do the entire book of Isaiah, we would probably, I probably would retire before we finished it. Uh, and so we're taking some of the highlights, particularly from this last part of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40. Uh, through chapter 66, where the Lord says, comfort, comfort my people. And so it's, it's themes of God's love and comfort to us. Uh, and so we come this morning to Isaiah 49. You'll see the sermon title, it's provocative, God the Mother. Because the image here we're given is that God is like a mother. And that that should be a comfort to our hearts. And so let's read together, beginning in verse 5. We're going to read down to verse 16. You can follow along with me. It's on the screen behind me. It'll be on your screen at home as well. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to the one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes. They shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land and a portion to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear, and they shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, and your walls are continually before me. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, by way of reminder, Isaiah is writing to the people of Judah in the years before their defeat and exile at the hands of the Babylonians. The New Testament calls Christians exiles. And so Isaiah's words to them are words to us as well. Isaiah is writing to prepare them ahead of time with the right theology so that when the hard times that are coming come, they can withstand the temptation to begin to believe wrong things about God. That's what we mean by the word unbelief. When we talk about unbelief, it's believing wrong things about God. When C.S. Lewis lost his wife in death, I quoted this a few weeks ago, but I thought by way of reminder it might be good, he wrote, 
this. He said, I am not, I don't think, in danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God's really like, deceive yourself no longer. And that's a real issue, I think. And so to make it through suffering, and not just make it through, but remember, remember the metaphor way back in chapter 40, beginning in verse 31, where he says, you'll be like, you'll mount up with wings as eagles and soar. In, in order to soar through life, which part of life is going through hard times, so in order to just not make it through, but soar through even the hardest times of life, your theology has to trump your circumstances and your feelings. It's the only way to make it through. And so Isaiah is writing to correct our wrong ideas about God. He's writing to help us begin to repent ahead of time, not in real time. Does that make sense? To go ahead and get the repentance done now and not when we get into the middle of some hard thing. And repentance, as I've said, is a change of mind. It's a change in your thinking about God that is so powerful that it changes the way you live. And it's much harder to do that in real time when the hard times come. The biochemistry of the brain tells us this, that when you're afraid or you're stressed, your brain is flooded with hormones. And the result is you get stupid. It's true. You get stupid. You stop thinking. It's, and so it's almost impossible to think your way out of it. And so you've got to do as much thinking ahead of time as possible because, you know, if you get the thinking out of the way, then you can have some reflexive stuff going on when you're in the middle of it. That's what Isaiah is trying to do to these people. That's why we're laboring to do this as well. You've got to do the thinking ahead of time. You've got to do the repenting of all of your wrong ideas about God and your embracing of the right views of who he is ahead of time because it's much, much, much easier then to remind yourself of those things and do the repentance that you need to do in real time. So Isaiah is arming us against suffering with different titles, names, and images of God. This is the name, image, likeness series of God, okay, if you're a sports fan. He is Savior. He is Redeemer. He's a rock. He's the Holy One of Israel. He keeps saying these things over and over again, but this morning he tells us that he's a mother. Now, don't take that the wrong way. I know that that's a provocative sermon title, not denying the fatherhood of God in any way. I've not slipped into liberalism that you need to worry about. None of that's going on, okay? It's right here in the text. In the text, it says that God likens himself to a nursing mother. Verse 14, now why is that? How does imagining God as a mother cuddling her child help us to get through the hard stuff? Well, when I say the word mother, what comes to mind for you? What words and feelings does mother evoke? And I know for some of us, maybe some really negative things. So here's what I would say. Take the very best experiences of being mothered, which we all have, or of mothering, which half of us have, and just ask the question, what can you learn about what God is like? from those experiences. Remember, this is a long extended, you know, material designed to bring comfort to his people. Isaiah 41, comfort, comfort my people, God says, which means the root of a lot of our sin, the root of our, a lot of our disobedience is discouragement. And the way that you 
go on and move on in the spiritual life is to overcome your discouragement and be comforted. And really, in many ways, what better image to bring comfort to God's people than for him to describe himself like a mother? Okay, so here's what we're going to see as we go through the text. We're going to see that Tony was really on to something last week as he talked to us because really all that Isaiah is saying here, he's projecting into the future. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, he's calling us to hope and he's trying to arm us with hope through this image of the motherhood, you know, God being like a mother, right? And so I want you to see the need for hope because of the way life works, but then also the loss of hope and what can happen to you if you really get kind of sideways and forget these essential truths about who God is. And then I want you ultimately see to see the reason for hope. And it really is in that verse down in verses 15 and 16 where God describes himself in this unique way, okay? And so let's just talk about the reason why we have to posture ourselves toward hope. There's a need for hope. So look at verse 13. Let's begin there. Where he says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people, and so forth. Now, this is the way that we should live our lives. This is, this is I mean, you can't read very far in the Psalms, for example, without the Psalms commanding their commands, commanding us to be people who just sing to the Lord, who live our lives exulting in God because of all of the good things that are coming to us. So he says, sing, break forth. He calls the mountains to sing. The inanimate objects of the earth should sing. And if they should sing, if the rocks should cry out, then of course we should too, right? Jesus even said, if they don't, if we don't, they will. And they will shame us for what we should be doing. So this is how we should live our whole life. Not just when things are going good, but also when nothing's going good. When you're afraid, when you're tired, when you don't know how it all is going to work out in the end, you should still sing for joy. Because of the very next part, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. He has comforted them with promises. Remember, this is the, these passages are loaded with promises. He doesn't necessarily comfort with an actual change of circumstances. He comforts with promises, with hope. And so chapter 49, verse 13 comes at the end of a long list of things that God promises to do in the future. And then you read verse 13 at the end of that. You read it in light of that. He says, sing, not because it's all good, Sing because God is working it all together for good. Sing because of the future that God is promising you. Sing in hope, he says. Sing because of all that God says he's going to do as we go throughout our life. Now, this is, this is like, this is little orphan Annie. You with me? The sun will come up tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun. Just thinking about... Tomorrow clears away the cobwebs and the sorrow till there's none. I'm so tempted to sing it, but I won't. Don't you just want to sing that song when you think of the words? I mean, when I'm stuck. No, I won't do it. I won't do it. She says, when I'm stuck with a day that's gray and lonely, I just stick out my chin and grin and say, and then I can't get to that note, so we definitely won't do that. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you tomorrow. You're always a day away. That's hope. That little orphan girl believing that her tomorrow is going to be better than today. That's powerful hope. And that's the lesson. And here's one of the things we can learn. And this would be an amazing thing. 
if, if we actually begin to live our lives this way. What this verse says, the re, the, that, that the call to sing in verse 13 comes after all the things God promises to do, and they are promises. They're not actually things happening to these people yet. It means that you can be a person who gets joy before you get the change of circumstances that you need. You can get joy to help you sing in your circumstances, whatever they might be, while you wait for the future God has promised. And so if you hate today, anybody hate today? I mean, if you just hate today, keep loving tomorrow. Because that's hope. And we are hope-shaped creatures. But let's don't move on before we look for a minute at what the future is that God has promised. Because there are lots of wonderful things that the prophet has to say to us here. And we won't read it all again. But I have in mind here verses 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. He just kind of goes uh, through one thing after the next, and it really is lovely language. Now, remember, the context is exile. The people are going off into a foreign land, and the promise here is the promise of return and restoration. And he uses image in, images, verse 11, the mountains becoming a road and the valleys being leveled off into a highway. And so the heights and depths that were before not passable, now a super highway for the people to travel on as they go back and regain their ancestral home. God can make a way where there seems to be no way. He can take a mountain and make it a road. He can take, he can take a deep valley and turn it into a highway. See, especially verses 22 and 23 there, if you go down further, if you have a Bible in front of you, uh, and he just talks about all the all the reversals and the changes that he's going to make. It's such a big deal uh, that it is always described using language that is apocalyptic. This idea of God bringing his people back. There's exaggerated end-of-the-world type stuff here because there's this great reversal that's going to happen. There's a resurrection. So if you look at verses 9, for example, there are three images just in that just in that one verse. There's the image of prisoners being set free and then darkness becoming light and bare heights transformed into pasture land. And we see this over and over in Isaiah, this idea of the desert being transformed into pools of water with cypress trees and so forth. But what does it mean? Well, again, it's about hope. It's about hope. And hope means that nothing is what it is. You guys know this, one of my personal mission statements is to ban that phrase. Have you heard this? I'm on a mission to ban the phrase, it is what it is. I'll smack you in the face if you say it in front of me. Not really, I won't. I won't because then you'll be mad at me or sue me or something, but I want to, right? It is what it is. Nothing is what it is. It is what it is right now. But with God, everything is becoming something else. Everything's becoming something better. They had sown in tears in the past, but they would reap joy, Psalm 125, 5 and 6, in the future. So the future would be full of unexpected surprises, resurrections, grace, surprises. But it also would be full of favorable, favorable forecasts. And that's verse 10. Look at verse 10 where he says, They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. Now, you need to know, uh, and I've got friends who are helping me 
grow my sanctification to not complain about the Florida weather. Uh, but I get really, really weary about this time of year. And so sometime in, in September, anybody else, I start to, <laughs> I'm not kidding, like I start to obsess over the 14-day forecast in, in Florida. Does anybody else do this? Like it's the thing I look at the first thing in the morning. And, I, and, I, and I'll go 14 days out because I'm just looking, when is it going to be 65 degrees outside in the morning? I can't, right, when? Just give me those lows in the 60s. I really don't even mind the highs in the 80s as long as I can get some 60s in the morning. Anybody with me? And here's, so it's really, it's the truth. It's not, I'm not kidding. And here, I love this. God is promising better times ahead than hard times in the past. He says, no scorching winds, no Florida August temperatures, right? The forecast is Florida in March is what he's saying. It's going to be lovely, gorgeous. And he would have pity on them. And he would lead them, he says, and there would always be plenty of food and water. Do you notice this language? Do you see this here? And I've been telling you guys about our hiking trips, which the one for this year got canceled. But I can tell you from experience, if you go out in the wilderness, water can become a problem. We've done it three or four times now, and every time it's been a problem. You may walk eight to ten miles, and the only water is this pipe that you got to kind of dig up through the leaves that's jetting out of the mountain with a trickle of water, and it become a desperate situation quickly but here God is saying I'm going to bring you back to the land I'm going to take you across the desert but don't worry all along the way there will be pasture and springs of water I've got it all taken care of the future is being arranged by God all of our bad things will turn to good and all of our best things are yet to come that's what these verses are telling us and so Isaiah says verse 13 Sing, sing, because it's all grace. And singing in the prophet Isaiah celebrates what you sing because you're overwhelmed at what's happening in your life and you recognize that God is doing it all. That you're contributing nothing. None of this, none of this in verses 7 through 12 is the result of our work. It's an important point to make. This is all God's doing. And you see it over and over again. Chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 24, verse 16. Chapter 25, verse 1. Chapter 30, verse 29. Chapter 54, verse 1. All of these calls to sing because the future that we're looking for is something that God will ultimately do. And so we can't work for it. All we can do is just revel in it. And it's all his work. It's an important point to make, though. In verse 3, see, this is, I wish you, if you have a Bible in front of you, you can go back to the beginning of this chapter. In verse 3, Israel is called the servant of the Lord. But then something changes as we begin to come to the verses that we're looking at in particular this morning. In verses 5 and 6, the servant changes identities, and, and the servant becomes a singular person who is going to save Israel. So in verse 3, Israel is the servant God's going to use. In verses 5 and 6, there's another servant who's going to actually, God's going to use him to save Israel. He's going to do for them what they themselves have failed to do. So the work described here is the work of the one true servant of the Lord, the Messiah. And he, not me, he, not you, is the one who will bring about the future we hope in. And that's good news, you with me? Because if it was dependent upon me or my strength, it would still be in doubt. We'd all be in trouble. But it's in his hands, and therefore it's a sure thing. And for Christians, of course, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the servant of the Lord. The light of the world, verse 46. The redeemer, verse 47. It's so clear. Look here, it says, I love this verse. 
in verse 7, it says this. It says, the Lord says, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, and so forth, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Now, who does that sound like? Ray Orland he says this. He says, the ways of God are so strange. Christ's strategy is not to overwhelm the arrogance of the world with an even more formidable arrogance like every other conqueror, but to empty himself and take the form of a servant. The future of God, we're told here, will be won through weakness. And that's one of the reasons why it can be so elusive, because you can't see through the weakness to see how it's going to happen. But look what it says. It says he comes deeply despised, abhorred. He's nothing more than the servant of the rulers. That's the first part of verse seven. But look at the last part of verse seven. What does it say that this one will accomplish? He says, but here's the thing. Here's at the end of the day, here's what it's gonna be like. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. The world bows to meekness. And it's Jesus' beauty not a strength that will ultimately overturn the whole world. He is a covenant to the people, verse 8. He is the very embodiment of God's pledge of grace to us. He is how God pours out favor upon us and binds us to himself. And no weakness, no sin, no failure, nothing in you or me can threaten or thwart the future that God has promised because it's in his hands. And therefore, it's a sure thing. And it's all grace. So, sing. And this should come upon our hearts. A lot of times we talk about sin only in terms of sin of commission. We talk about and think about sin as the things we, uh, we do not, excuse me, the things that we do that we should not do. But here in this call to sing, I want you to consider sins of omission, that there are times we sin against the Lord by failing to do the things he calls us to do. And here he says, stop worrying so much about your life and sing. But secondly, this is hard, isn't it? Isn't that hard? It's hard. That comes upon the conscience in a heavy way sometimes because it's hard. And so you see not only that there's a need for hope, but you see that there can also be a loss of hope because there's no guarantee that today will become the tomorrow that we're looking for, right? It might be tomorrow or six months from now or six years or even beyond our death. And when that tomorrow is long in coming. And when you have to keep plowing through today and waiting for tomorrow, it's easy to get discouraged. And that's what happens to these people here. Again, I wish uh, that I had printed this part, but up in verses two and three, you see, it, it, it's profound, the sense of the language here describing discouragement. I'm gonna read it to you. If you have a Bible, you can look back there or you can grab the Bible in the pew really quick if you wanna see it. But in chapter 49, verses two and three, he says, the Lord has called me, He's made me like a sharp sword, a polished arrow. He said, you're my servant. I will glorify myself in you. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. I mean, it's so easy to live from that place, defeated, dejected. God said it was gonna be this way, but it's turned out this way, right? It's all for nothing. I've wasted my time. It is what it is. And it'll never be any different. And I give up. Discouragement like that is a loss of hope. Now what I appreciate so much about this text, it's true of so much of scripture, is the way that it gets under the hood of discouragement. 
The Lord wants to get under the hood of your discouragement this morning. It shows the deeper spiritual cause of the discouragement these people are suffering with here. And the center of the text is the anti-climax of verse 14. Okay? The anti-climax of verse 14. So I've already showed you verse 13. He says, sing. And you would imagine that the people should begin to sing. But immediately look what happens in verse 14. The Lord says, let's read them together. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult. Break forth, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Verse 14, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My God has forgotten me. And I call it an anticlimax because it is so out of place. It disrupts the flow of thought in the text. I mean, what should come after verse 13? Yes, Lord, we'll sing, right? The prophet says, sing for joy, and the next thing should be a song, but instead we get a lament. And the question we should ask and be curious about is, how does that happen? How do you read verses 8 through 13, right? How do you go up to verse 8 and see all the things the Lord says he's going to do and read all of that and then yet still arrive at verse 14? And yet, that is so much of life, isn't it? Every day is grace upon grace, grace after grace, grace on top of grace on top of grace, and yet we, if we're not diligent, can still be people who live from verse 14 rather than verse 13. And John Calvin explained why in his commentary on this passage. He said, put it this way, he said, afflictions trouble our consciences and cause them to waver in such a manner that it is not so easy to rest firmly on the promises. Here's what he meant. He said, our faith is so fragile. We are so prone to believe the worst things about God because we operate in religion mode. And by that I mean this, that we believe that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. So if bad things are happening to me, then what conclusion do I make? That it must be because I've been bad. I interpret bad circumstances as a verdict If it's going bad, it's because I'm bad. And God loves good people, not the bad people. And so when suffering comes, here's the conclusion. And all of this happens like in an instant in our in our brains, but it does. If if right, if bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people, and if bad things are happening to me, and if God loves the good people and not the bad people, then I then all of this comes to this conclusion in my heart. Well then God doesn't love me. Or else my life wouldn't be going this way. He's finally gotten tired of me. (laughs) I knew it would happen. Eventually, he's finally given up on me. He's finally just kicked me to the curb. And that's what happens in our hearts. Richard Lovelace said that the problem with religion is that it doesn't satisfy the conscience. If you believe that God loves you because you're good, you have a big problem. Can I say that again? If you believe that God loves you because you're good, you have a big problem. And here's the big problem. You can never be good enough. Because no matter how much good you do, your conscience will always be there accusing you of not doing enough. Because, of course, the standard is perfection. The standard is the glory of God, the holiness of God, right? The standard is what God talks about in his word. And so when, when you know, and nobody meets that standard. Nobody is perfect. Nobody is righteous. No, not one, the Bible says. And so when the tomorrow that you're hoping for is long and coming, what happens is, is your conscience is there and it begins to kind of nudge you. There's this little voice inside of you, this condemning terrible thing that I just want to like just grab by the throat and throw out of my life but I can't seem to like grab a hold of it inside of me the conscience comes and says see see this is what I've been saying you've not been good 
God doesn't love you, and here's the evidence. If God really loved you, it wouldn't be happening like this, so you better not trust him. Just try harder. And you lose hope. And you get filled with regret about the past or anxiety about the future, and it's hard to rest and trust his promises. We know from psychological studies that are being done now that babies who are left in their cribs and left without someone who is attuned to their needs, eventually, if they're left there long enough, they will eventually stop crying. And that's the worst sound in an orphanage when there are no babies crying because the no crying means they've given up. It's the sound of hopelessness. And children who experience that in infancy often go on to be radically insecure and emotionally disconnected for the rest of their lives. Here's what I want to say to you this morning. The same thing can happen to us spiritually. We live with a deep-seated fear of being abandoned by God because the conscience is just accusing us constantly. And it's because in our sin, we are alienated from him. We have never attached to him because we don't believe that he is attuned to our needs. And we have these toxic views of what God is like, and they keep us from the kind of communion with him that we've been made for and that we need. And Isaiah is trying to help us find our way back. He's saying there's a reason for hope. Don't give up hope. Don't let your, don't let your conscience get the best of you. Don't let, it, don't let the condemning heart just grind you to dust. Don't give up on the future that God has given you. If the tomorrow you're waiting for is long and coming, keep waiting, keep hoping, keep loving tomorrow. Even if you hate today, keep loving tomorrow because God has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten you. And you know that because he's a mother. Verse 15, can a woman forget? Do you see how the Lord responds? Seeing verse 13, the Lord has forgotten us, verse 14. God comes right back in verse 15. He punches back, right? With this, with this amazing image. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, he says. And so the image there is of a mother and her children. It dominates the entire passage, this chapter in Isaiah's prophecy. And it's a fitting metaphor because in ancient and uh, literature and, and, and even in contemporary Hollywood, the father is often the enemy who needs to be overcome. He is the obstacle to our autonomy in all the stories. You, can, you leave home to leave your father in a lot of ways. But moms have to be overcome for different reasons. Moms have to be overcome because of their suffocating embrace. Right? We come, Ashley and I were talking about this last night, we come into the world organically tied to our moms. And time doesn't change that, at least not for the moms, right? Independence is the affront a mother cannot countenance. Now, that sounds, all, that sounds negative. I don't mean it to be. Uh, there's a reason why Mother's Day was a thing for 58 years before dads got their holiday, too. What the heck is that about? Father's Day is the 20th most popular holiday in our, country, in our country, Mother's Day is number two. Christmas is number one. So there's Jesus, mamas. You with me? Arbor Day is number 13. What the heck? Halloween is number eight. So ghosts and skeletons rank above dads. I'm not kidding. There are 40 million less cards sold on Father's Day than on Mother's Day. 
We spend an average of $180 on our moms every Mother's Day, an average of $120 on our dads. I don't know. Doesn't seem right to me. But I think there's something there. It's a very complicated relationship we have with our mothers. We know we should celebrate them, but it's very complicated. We have a problem with our moms because we have a problem with the dependence they represent. Their yearning, tenacious, fierce love is often misunderstood as an attempt to control, and sometimes it is. It's complicated. Moms, but here's the thing we can say. Moms are not prone to forget their children. They are far more prone to smother their children. And we both, at the same time, resent and we relish them for it. Let's take it easy on the moms. I mean, Ashley helped me understand the, the image here because, of course, it's foreign to my personal experience. But she said, this is a nursing mother here. And when moms are nursing, their bodies literally won't let them forget the babies they're nursing. See, all the moms are like, amen in that. Now I'm getting amens from the moms. For Ashley, she said, you know, we had four kids. She said, the baby might be quiet and content, but then I'm like just sitting in the, in the room and all of a sudden my body starts saying, where's the baby? Where's the baby? Time to feed the baby. And your body does this. I mean, in it, in it, I just, I marvel at that. It amazes me. There's no analogous experience for dads, which I kind of grieve, to be honest with you, a little bit. Well, not, not really, to be honest. <laughs> but it is an amazing thing to me. So James, Jamie Smith said, mothers are sacramental echoes of the unfailing love of God. They are preambles to grace, a grace before grace, a natal grace. A mother's stubborn, suffocating love might be annoying at times, but it teaches us something really important about God. In the text, it says that even a mother's love might fail. Now, that, <laughs> I was talking with Ashley about that, and that, she was like, no, it doesn't say that. But it does. It says, even, I mean, as great as mothers are, even a mother's love might fail, but his love never will. He is not just a mother. His love is even better. His compassion is even more reflexive, more consuming. His acceptance is even more unconditional. We might have some negative experiences of being mothered or of mothering, but God is the very best of all of that. If you've ever mothered, that might be hard for you to imagine, that God is saying your experience as a mother or your experience of being mothered my love is so much better than that. I mean, you might have a hard time with that. You might have a mother who failed you. And if that's the case, I'm truly sorry. And again, the point is not, is, the point here is that no mother is perfect. That every mother, even the best mother, is a faint echo of God's unfailing love. And we've all experienced, though, for good or for bad, the intensity of a mother and of a mother's love. And we're meant to imagine what God's love must be like if what we've known with our moms is a small thing in comparison. Or we've experienced the agonizing intensity of the absence of a mother's love. And we're meant to look to God for what our mothers were not able to give us. See, a mother's love is an echo of God's love, but I love what Jamie Smith says. He says it is a sacramental echo. It's something holy. So I love this. He goes on. He has a chapter in one of his books about mothers. He says, mothers weep and pray and chase their children. They misunderstand, misunderstood, unappreciated, resisted, resented, and yet none of that resentment could stop them. None of that resistance in their children will deter them. No lack of gratitude could ever persuade them to give up. Like grace, mothers don't work on the logic of return. 
And I think that's the point. God's grace is like that too. God's love is not conditional. It's grace. It's undeserved. Some babies, this is going to get me in trouble. Some babies are ugly. (laughs) But try telling their mother that. You with me? Moms do not only love what is lovable in their kids, they just love them because they're theirs. Just like the Lord with his people. So when you're discouraged, when you're on the mat, when the doubts creep in about whether God is strong enough, but most of the time the doubts aren't, is he strong enough? The doubts are, is he good enough? We question his heart more than we do his power. Verse, 49, verse 14 of chapter 49 is an accusation, accusation against his goodness. He's forgotten us. He's, got tired of, he's gotten tired of us. His heart for us has failed, they say. And I responds by saying, God has not forgotten you. You're the one that's forgotten. <laughs> I, love, I read, exercise your memory instead of accusing God of losing his, Isaiah says. I love Psalm 105 which we read, verses 5 through 8. Remember God because he remembers you. Don't forget all that he's done because he never forgets you. He never forgets his promises. Do you know how profoundly you are loved by God? John Calvin said again, what amazing affection does a mother feel towards her children, which she cherishes and watches over with tender care so as she passes sleepless nights and wears herself out by continued anxiety and forgets herself. It is the job description of moms to not forget. Listen, God help us if the moms start to forget things. What in the world would we do? The only thing moms forget is themselves. They wear themselves out with selfless love. And so, the passage concludes in verse 16, even these may forget. Yet I will not forget. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Isn't that beautiful? My daughter comes home, drives me crazy from school every day with stuff written all over her hands, her homework assignments, so that she won't forget. And here we have another metaphor. We leave the mother metaphor, but we go right to the heart of the gospel. We leave this, right, he kind of mixes the metaphors here. Alex Mortier who wrote what most people consider the definitive commentary on Isaiah, on Isaiah, he made this great point. He said in chapter 53, which is this chapter, it's coming in just a few, in a few um, chapters, the suffering servant, this clear representation of, of the dying love of the, of the Messiah, it says his sufferings are detailed there. But if you read Isaiah 53, there's no mention of his hands. Now, it's a clear allusion to Jesus' death on the cross for us, but he says it's interesting, there's just... This weird thing that nowhere are his hands mentioned. And then there's a little note in his commentary. He says, any mention of his hands was reserved for a later date. And then there's a reference to John 20, 19, and 20, which is why I went to that passage. And there, I'll remind you what it says. It says, on the evening of that day, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands. He eternally bears on his hands the mark of his love. Listen. How could you ever be forsaken? On the cross, nailed there, through the hands, 
By his love for us, Jesus experienced God-forsakenness. He hung there in our place as a substitute, enduring all of the consequences of our sin, our rejection, our, the absence, the condemnation that is due to us because of our sin, but because the Father turned away from him in that moment, as the scripture teaches, he will never turn away from you and me. He treated Jesus as your sins deserve, which means he will never treat you as your sins deserve. He will never repay you according to your iniquity if you believe. If you go through a hard time, he's not forsaken you. He's not forgotten you. He's loving you. All there is in his heart towards you is love. Do you believe it? Look at his hands. They they bear the marks of his love. And so I'll say to you what he says to Thomas. Don't disbelieve believe. The apostle Paul believed. He said, I'm convinced. I'm sure that nothing can separate me from God's love for me and Jesus. And if you believe like that, you can be convinced too. Do you see his heart? Do you see his hands? They bear the marks of his love. And so you can be sure he loves you too. And when that happens, Paul says, you'll become more than a conqueror, not just a conqueror, more than a conqueror through his love. So listen, Again, to the hymnist when he says, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I cannot desert to its foes. God says, that soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never. I'll never, no, never. I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Amen? Pray with me if you would. So Father, that is true and we believe it. But we would say to you, help our unbelief. Help our unbelief. And so even as we sing now, and we come to the conclusion of this service, help us to sing. As you've told us in verse 13 here, to sing because of the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. To sing because it is fitting to respond to your love in that way, to sing even if we do not feel all that we should, to sing so that your spirit might work in us, to sing as an act of faith, maybe a first act of faith. If there are some here this morning who have never believed, I pray you would draw them to yourself with cords of love. But for all of us, help us now as we come to you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.